Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I love data centers. We love data centers! Welcome and thank you for listening. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio, founder, CEO, and catalyst of Open Spectrum. What you can expect to find here on this podcast are fresh new conversations with some of the most successful, experienced, and fascinating players that I have met while working in the data center marketplace over the past decade. For those who already know me, this probably goes without saying, but I can assure you new listeners that there will be no marketing fluffery or sales BS here. In fact, this is specifically a no marketing fluffery and sales BS zone, at least for the next hour or so. My objective is pure. It's to simply share some raw, honest advice and entertaining stories that will hopefully teach you something new, maybe something thought-provoking and maybe even enjoyable about the industry that drives the brave new digital world that we live in today. Tim Kaiser, the founder and CEO of Colocation Atlanta, which operates a little over 20,000 square feet out of the 55 Marietta facility across the street from 56 Marietta, downtown Atlanta, and arguably the the largest, not arguably the largest uh, internet exchange in the region, um, is one of the gems in the industry that I've come across how he operates his business, the principles that he lives by, the lessons that he's learned over the years are truly remarkable and very much in line with my ethos. And I was very thankful and grateful to have spent time with him talking about how he got started in the industry, the lessons that he's learned having 25 plus years uh, as a design designer and engineer of data centers, over 70 data centers across the country, um, that he has under his belt, a truly remarkable human being and a great conversation had with Tim Kaiser. And I hope you enjoy the interview. Tim, thank you so much for taking the time to jump on the, uh, I love data centers podcast with me. Thank you, sir, for having me. So I know we've only spent a little bit of time talking before a, uh, a panel discussion at one of the, the conferences. Um, so this is actually going to be really, really cool for me because I get to authentically learn everything that I can about you and your background and how you got started in the industry. But before I dig into to all of that, I'd love to know, you know, where where are you right now? Like, where, where are you sitting and residing? Um, right now, I'm in uh, downtown Atlanta at uh, one of my offices I've had for 17 years. Also want to mention uh, Colo ATL. Uh, I, I named my my data center after my grandfather jack and uh, the omni t so that's where the jt communications comes from and about four to five years ago i had some folks said you know tim what's that got to do with telecom and i said not a whole lot and they said well won't we do a rebrand and so now i dba is colo atl and that's short for colocation atlanta gotcha so i have just did a big expansion. Uh, it's been taking a lot of my time. Uh, I took half of the fifth floor at 55 Marietta Street. I have almost the entire eighth floor. So now I have 26,000 square feet of what I call neutral carrier interconnection room. I don't right. like really being called a data center because that's where you know people bring on those big, big blade servers and they use a lot of power. And being licensed, I'm actually a graduate of Georgia Tech. And then I went and got my PE, my professional engineer. Hold on, Tim. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on, man. Hey, you're, you're, getting way, you're getting way ahead of me right now. 
So what what I'm most interested in to set the stage for for what you got cooking right now is how did you get started? Like where where did you grow up? And while you were growing up, like were you did you have a family that was uh, involved in technology in some way? You know, a, a father or a mother who was an engineer. Like how did you get involved with tech? Or when was the first time that you you know got in front of a laptop or a, or a computer? Well, we'll go back. I hate to show my age here a little bit. Um, the whole reason I like to become an engineer is because I remember my Uncle Roger uh, was a mechanical engineer. And I said, you know, these mechanical engineers, these engineers make good money because I grew up on the river on Ohio. And so that got my interest. And then I remember always dealing with electricity, kind of stuck my finger in the socket and got shocked. And I said, you know, I kind of like this electrical stuff. So I chose electrical engineer. I only applied for one school, Georgia Tech. When uh, my dad relocated us from Ohio to Georgia. When I was 16, the Stone Mountain, and I applied to Georgia Tech, and I got to go there, and proud to say I graduated five years later. And the funny part was, when I first started tech, we had what we called a computer center. So there was no such thing as computers or even cell phones or laptops. Those things didn't exist. We actually had to go down and wait. You know, there was a campus of probably, you know, a couple thousand people, and we had like 20 stations. And we would go down there to the computer center. And back in the day, that used to be called Minnesota Fortran before Windows and all got developed. It's gone now. And um, so that was kind of my first. I never got my first laptop till after I got out of college, uh, which I graduated in 1986. So since then, I've had a whole bunch. It's just it kills me now that, you know, almost these cell phones that we have are almost like a walking computer in themselves. So that's my first uh, start. So when you were working for the engineering firm, right, right, uh, or out of college, was that involved in, was that an IT engineering or was that just a electrical or structural engineer? It was uh, what we call MEP and FP, mechanical, electrical, plumbing, and fire protection. And I left my, I left, I left home at 18 after I graduated. So I got through school by doing my program. It's called the co-op pro, cooperative program. I like to say basically you go to school a quarter and then you go unemployed and work for a quarter to pay for the next. And I worked with an MEP firm and we designed, you know, all types of commercial buildings, nothing residential, you know, and it could be, and at the time that's when AutoCAD just first came out. It's like AutoCAD 4 if you can go back that far. Yep. And so I really got into building systems, you know, whether it was a hotel, a mall, a church, you know, office building, they all had, you know, mechanical, which we call HVAC, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning systems, electrical systems being the lighting and power to the building, of course, the plumbing for water and condensate water for the units, and then fire protection, you know, to make sure we keep everybody safe. So I did that, and I started in 81 at Georgia Tech, and I graduated in 86. So it's basically when you go school quarter and work a quarter, uh, there's four quarters there, so it extends you. It's a five-year program, I call it. Gotcha. So what What then, I mean, you, you eventually started your own firm and went off on somewhat of an entrepreneurial track. What What inspired that? Well, I always had a dream. I always wanted to be an Air Force pilot or a pilot in one of the branches, but I, I picked Air Force. My dad was uh, Navy, and both my grandfather served in World War II. Dad was Vietnam, and I actually served in Desert Storm. So I got my wish when I got out of school, graduated Georgia Tech, I got accepted and um, and I got to go to flight school. And actually, um, 
got through, got my wings, and I flew B-52s in Desert Storm. And then after Desert Storm, the economy will kind of have what they call RIF, reduction in force, which is a nice word for saying you're getting laid off. So we got an option to come back into the work world, and I thought, you know, I think I'd like to do this. I've done, you know, my three, four years of duty. And I came back, and I was always an entrepreneur wanting to start my own company. I started with a little construction company, and then I worked on my engineering degree because as an engineer, I passed what they call test engineering training, EIT test, which is a prerequisite. You have to get four more years of um, experience under another professional engineer. And I had approximately about two years with my co-op and and I got to work a little bit before I went into the service. So I did that for two years. Then I got my own practice. And during that time, we started working at buildings like 55 Marietta Street. When telecom just kind of got started and I kind of fell into the niche because I was the only guy that would go in and help these people out because nobody really wanted to do that. They was like, we don't understand it. And the building really, you know, the buildings were made before, in you know, 1950, before typewriters or even floor heaters were made. So, so Tim, didn't have you, a lot of power. Real quick, do you remember the first data center that you that you walked into? I do. It was, um, well, it, it morphed into one. It was this little cabinet upstairs, and it was actually in the ITC uh, holdings at the time, and it's gone now. And I helped the guy, and he said, hey, you know, we'd like to move out of here, and we got a little place down on Peachtree Street. Will you help us? And I said, sure. So I helped them design their data center and all. And they took it just took off and it's a small little company called Mindspring. Mr. Brewer owned it. And um that was one of the first data centers that I saw that I got to design was for Mindspring, which now become Earthlink, which is now a windstream if you can keep following all the acquisitions. Yeah, they just uh in fact we used to host trainings out of that office in midtown Atlanta through the relationship we had with Microcorp and and their agents. Uh, and we were just recently told that they're going to be shutting down that office. And they had they had a beautiful, ideal, idyllic uh, setting for these trainings with a massive conference room that had large glass windows up on the 11th floor or something to that extent. But uh, spent a lot of time in those offices. Yeah, it was a real it was a good challenge down there because I had to pull in a new service. This is where they had you know the overhead service, which is you know folks usually don't like because storms can knock it down. And um, we had to put a big generator down there, two of them, in fact, and. That was a big deal because fuel in the city, and then there's apartment buildings behind. Uh, I remember one news lady that was very popular here in Atlanta was not very happy when the generators come on. So it um, it's all about folks getting used to telecommunications and how important it was in their lives that uh, people had to see they had to overcome a few things. Like, hey, they were in the city with you. So you, you've been in and around the facilities then since early 2000s, late late 90s? Uh, early 90s, yes, sir. And then when you eventually ventured off to start Colo Atlanta or Colocation Atlanta, what what was the impetus for that? Did it fall in your lap or did you have like a business plan fully baked? How, how did that happen? Well, the latter part, no. Ironically, um, you know, I thought being a professional engineer was going to be good. Getting out of the service, I still miss flying. So I started thinking, I was like, well, I don't know too many engineers that have, you know, like a private jet. And then I said, but, you know, these telecom guys, you know, they're making a lot of money and they get, they, I could have a jet. And I said, maybe I could do both. So I actually designed um, 56 Marietta, which is now, you know, which became Telex and now it's Digital Realty Trust. And I'm actually the stamp and designed that building. 
But I did it for when I first, when I finally, you know, got my license. It took me a while to get my PE license. I actually failed the test four times. I think, um, you know, I've been out of college like six years, and then, you know, the, te- the PE test is about all that stuff. But I took a refresher course at Georgia Tech, and then I passed it. Well, then, real quick for for our listeners, can you can you define what PE what the PE test is? Uh, for a PE means professional engineer, and the other occupations folks have heard like everybody graduates from Georgia Tech an engineer. They're not a professional engineer. The old saying was you could go hang your shingle. Once you become a professional, you can have your own office. And you know the biggest one folks really see is MD. You know, every time everybody graduates, they're doctors, then they have to do their internship, which I do too. And then you take the bar exam and you become a medical doctor. Uh, accountants are CPAs, certified public accountant. Uh, RAs are registered architects, which I work with, and I'm a professional engineer. I gotcha. actually kind of went a little crazy because I, I got barred in 34 states and not barred. I got licensed in 34 states past the bar in 34 states. So I've got a design all over this great country, in particular, telecommunications and data centers. When you say that you were involved in, in building 56 Marietta, what, what specifically was your role in, in the architecture and in building out of that facility? Basically, I designed all the mechanical, electrical, and plumbing systems for the entire building. And this was in 2001. I started my practice in 1999. And in 2001, I did this for Mark, Don, and Wes, so the original owners, 56 Marietta Partners. And what that encompasses is basically I get the infrastructure ready for folks to come in and move in and build out their suites. And in 2001, the economy was just so good. I, I don't know if there's anything you couldn't have not made money in doing. I Within a year, they had Genuity took the top two floors. Then a little company called Switch and Data came in. Then we had Enron come in. Within a year, I could hardly get the infrastructure of the building completed because basically I'll draw it up, design it, put it on what we call construction documents or blueprints. We give those to the contractors, mechanical, electrical, and plumbing contractors, and they come in, put a bid on the job, and then they'll build it. I could hardly get the job built with me overseeing it before all these other companies. It was 10 floors, and they were almost leased within one year. So when you came back and said, what was your game plan? At the time, the guy said, hey, Tim, why don't you take a little space over at 55? We're going to put this, we're going to dig underneath the street, put some steel pipes, conduits, and we're going to connect our building to your room. And then hopefully everybody in the building will come to your room, can come across what I call the bridge. And basically they wanted to steal all the customers from 55 to make their 56 successful. But as I mentioned earlier, in 2001, everything was really going good. They didn't really need that help. I looked at it. You know, I'd served in the military. I'd been in college. You know, I never really had a great job where I had a 401k plan. And I said, maybe this could be with my little 401k plan. So I invested in 1,000 square feet at 55 and started JT Communications. And it's just, God's been good two minutes morphed. I mean, I've morphed. I uh, had my 16th year anniversary on October 1st, a couple of weeks ago. And it's just morphed to where I have over 26,000 square feet now, and I have over 92 tenants and carriers. So dis- describe for, for those who don't know the Atlanta market or 56 and 55 Marietta, like what makes 56 Marietta what it is today? And what makes 55 Marietta you know, across the street what it is today as well? Well, 55, I like to call myself because I am the, the meet me room at 55 Marietta. And 
telex, the whole building's a meet me room. I don't know if you remember back. I don't know if you remember Fantasy Island, and they had the uh, you know I, the little guy, curve. He was tattoo. Um, you know, I'm a little a mini me. I call it because they have a hundred thousand square feet, and I have twenty six. What happened back in um, I'm going to say in the forties or fifties, they actually elevated Peachtree Street, and in this case Marietta Street too. And what that happened was because back in the day, the city used to get its heat uh, from gas. And there was steam gas. So all these areas, Georgia Power had the right-of-way. They lifted up the street, so there's a lot of room, you know, for, for uh, pipes. Well, that went away, and then they said, hey, why don't we use these pipes? It's a public right-of-way, and it was easy to get all of the fiber. The whole point to that conversation was all the fiber networks meet at 55 and 56 because of the ease of the public right-of-ways that we were able, able to utilize. Plus, back in the day when we were doing this in the early 2000s, nobody really knew what was going on, and we're getting all these fiber providers building into us where today they don't really want to because they want a business plan, and the economy's not been so good for them to spend you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars to bring a conduit with some fiber and or, I call it glass, into a facility. So that's what makes, I think, the hub. The other big reason it's a great hub is because I don't believe this theory, but some people think Florida is just an island going to get washed away. So folks actually do what they call it DR, um, disaster recovery, where they have their pops up with me from Florida. So Miami, Jacksonville, they all come to, to Atlanta. Atlanta has a straight shot to New York. You can go due west and hit Dallas, and then you can go to L.A., you can actually go up to Chicago, which is northwest, and go over to Seattle. So it's like the major hub. All the submarine cables at the time come into New York and down to Miami, and now we've got four or five in Jacksonville. So all of those come here. So now we can get across to what I call the pond over to Europe, and we're the gateway to everyone in the South America. You know, all these countries are starting to add, you know, telecommunications to their infrastructure and their governments. So everything kind of I feel Atlanta is like the gym in the world. It's a major node, and it's very, you know, it's uh, protected, per se, from tornadoes, storms, hurricanes, and of that nature. So it's a very rock-solid place. Costs are low to for power, and it's got all this fiber connectivity from, you know, all the aforementioned ways that it's connected. And I'm and sitting right fat dab on top of it. It's pretty great. Yeah, so, you, right, you know, it's one of those right place, right time, right? Um, absolutely once in once in life. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, first off, thank you for your service. I forgot to mention that earlier. I appreciate everything that you've sure. done, um, for our country. And the other question I have though, is colo colocation Atlanta, you don't actually own the building, you know, the, you're not the, the real estate owner, property owner for 55. Are you, or have you? No, sir. You? I'm not. I've, I've been for the last five years, I've been trying to buy the building. Uh, and a gentleman uh, over in the Netherlands actually lives in Amsterdam. They own the building and they own uh, their, their niche markets, properties uh, like apartment buildings. But uh, they own, he had a childhood friend and they had bought the building and bought a few buildings downtown. And um, they had a, a breakup in their business. So he took back the building and his partner took over some apartment buildings. So my day, one day my hope is to own the building, but I'm right now, I'm um, one of its largest tenants next to CenturyLink. CenturyLink and I are the largest tenants in the building. And how, how big is that building? 
Well, that's what's funny. When people are standing there, if you're looking, because you can walk out the doors of 55 or 56, just look straight ahead and see the other building. And I'm like, you know, let's just do a little brain teaser. How big do you think 56 is? I don't know. It's 100,000 square feet. Okay. Well, how big do you think 55 is? Well, I don't know. It looks the same because when you're down on the street looking up the skyscrapers, they all kind of look the same. I said, well, it's law math. 56 has 10K plates, 10,000 square foot plates, 10 floors, 10 times 10, 100,000. 55 has 20,000 square foot plates, and they have 20 floors. So 20 times 20, they have 400,000 square feet, which is four times bigger than 56, but on the street, they sure look the same. And how much of that 400,000 is dedicated to, to co-location services? Currently, right now, it's just approximately half the building, 200,000 square feet. Um, one thing I got to do with my professional engineering and, and designing There's only two buildings in Atlanta that I know that we have two Georgia Power Vaults. Um, I designed both of them. We got one at 56, so they have two two vaults, and I have two vaults at 55. So both buildings have similar in power, and we've been a lot more frugal at 55 because we'll just say there's 10 megawatts. 10 megawatts is serving 200,000 square feet, and then we have the same 8 to 10 megawatts at 56 serving their 100,000 square feet. So as you've been growing inside 55, Marietta, did you ever have kind of an itch to expand outside of the Atlanta market? Like what, what made you decide to stay fixated in, in that market, in that building? Well, my primary occupation was, you know, doing engineering, which I've designed over 200 projects. I was really just gung-ho and working at it. Uh, the entrepreneur spirit, and then you know, the more money, the more you do, the more money you get. And when you own the place, you get to keep it. So that was really a, a plus. I had started, you know, that's like a little four hundred one k, a thousand square feet. But then I got the opportunity to start expanding uh, after seven years in business, and that's what I did. I went up and took half the eighth floor. At that time, other folks, because I used, you know, I speak at IMN, you know, Comptel, you know, um, Metro Connect, all these um, conferences. And I had a lot of people say, hey, Tim, would you like to you know, partner with us or be in Miami, be in Texas? And I'm kind of like, what I learned by designing, building, and then running the data center, it's a beast. And you have to be around it. I call it the baby that never grows up. You have to always be around her 24-7. So I declined offers to, to have other facilities because I like to, I like to call myself the small mom and pop shop. So I didn't want to be, you know, if there's a problem in Miami, I'd have to jump on a jet and I might not get down there for four or five hours. And that's eternity when uh, you're offline. So I helped them. I designed a lot of their facilities and helped them, you know, get it off the ground. And and I think if you design it right, pay for good, solid systems and have a good, what I call preventative maintenance, PM program, uh, you do really well. And so I help all the guys. And that's how I got involved with, you know, all the other Colo and neutral um, interconnect rooms around the country. So we have a mutual uh, friend in Hunter Newby who yes, sir. I interviewed a couple weeks ago, and we just actually launched uh, that podcast last week, um, which I highly recommend you, you check out. I think you'd find it uh, pretty fascinating. But how how did you meet Hunter, and what was what does that relationship consist of? Well, the original guys, Mark, Don, and Wes, I call them. The original company was Fifty Six Marietta Partners, three gentlemen. Uh, what I didn't know, these guys were real estate guys, and their whole play was they wanted to start this business because they'd heard it might make some money, and they wanted to do what you call flip, you know, buy a property and then five years later sell it for more. 
Ironically, they bought the building for less than five million. I know that this is all in the paper, so it's you know nothing I'm telling you know secrets. And which which building are you talking about? Fifty five or fifty six? Fifty six, Marietta. And I know they got their money back just from the meet me room that I helped them you know build and you know and our connections between the buildings. And after five years, they decided to let it go. And they had met Hunter through the time about you know how to make the building you know more you know, palatable for folks to want to acquire it. And they actually gave Telex a shot, and Telex actually wound up buying the building. So when they came down, of course, since I did all the engineering, I mean, it's kind of a fascinating building because, you know, I put eight generators downstairs in the basement, which is kind of unheard of. So when Telex came down, it was Hunter Newby, Rory, and Todd Raymond, which were uh, the owners at the time. I got to show them the entire facility because, you know, I designed it and built it. And um, Hunter and Roy and Todd and I've been friends. We became friends from that ever since. And um, Hunter's one of my, you know, fondest. He's I call him my joint venture partner. He has a lot of things. A lot of the people he comes to Atlanta knows. We both know. And um, you know, I keep him kind of close at heart, even though he lives up in uh, New York. We, um, you know, I helped with some of the buildings that they'd acquired. Actually, um, when he got back out, it's funny. Three twenty-five huts, and I actually designed for focal communications 15 years ago because he, I went up to visit him for one of Jamie Scotto's events, JS name. He said, hey, you want to come see my building? And I walked in. I said, boy, this building looks familiar. He said, what do you mean? I said, I designed this thing. He said, no, you didn't. I said, yes, I did. And um, so it's kind of a small world of helping people. And, um, yeah, Hunter's a very good friend, very knowledgeable in um, the telecom world. And, uh he always defers to me on the engineering piece of a, of a data center. Well, um, part of the reason why I, I took the opportunity when it was presented to, to interview you is there's there's only a handful of folks, honest to God, of the thousands I've met in our industry who I've met who I think are, you know, what I like to say are in it for the right reasons. I mean, we all want to make a buck, right? Um, yes, but at what expense, right? Um, and there, there's certain people that I've met in the industry who I feel kind of they're grounded. They have integrity. They operate with integrity. They don't just talk about it, but they act in their day-to-day actions. Um, and Hunter, you know, I found Hunter to be one of those people. And so anyone who who Hunter recommends as being on that level, uh, I take seriously. And you, you are definitely among <laughs> among that group. Um, but I want to I want to oh, speak you. to that, Timothy uh, or Tim. Um, you know what what has helped shape you into the man that you are today. Uh, in how you in, and how you conduct business, right? Because um, it's in how we do business, not just what we do, but how we do that really defines us uh, in the professional world. So could you speak a little bit to what helped shape you to that extent? Yes, sir. It's kind of funny. You called me Timothy. And um, that's what my mom used to call me when I knew I was in trouble. She said, Timothy Aaron. I said, oh, God, what do you're, I do you're now? You're definitely not in trouble here. <laughs> um, but on uh, off that is uh my parents and my grandparents you know of course i mentioned i named it after my jack they uh i had good you know moral compass good you know um i like to help people i was never one of those folks that wanted to get rich quick or you know want things even cars is kind of funny i never had a car a dream car i had to buy um what i do and hunter and i have the same opinion on this is it's called monthly reoccurring cross connect fees and Equinix is a billion-dollar company, you know, and they bought switching data, you know, selling, pa- I call it passive circuits. And 
I just never believed in that. Oh, I just do power and space. I always tell folks, I said, what can I do to help you make money to pay me rent? That's pretty much my motto. Because I love helping people. I love watching them grow. I love getting new people. I've seen people go from one cabinet, like I was talking with Mr. Brewer, you know, their flink, and they um, and you know, they grew into MindSpring. I've seen that happen so many times. I mean, the telecom world is such a fascinating, interesting, and then for being an engineer, it's very interesting for me. So that's kind of how that all came together is that, you know, I love treating people right. I don't do it for the money. And the biggest reason I can save a lot of folks money is because I don't charge monthly recurring cross-connect fees that others do. I like to feel like it's a family. I take care of the people. And the funny part is I think there's two ways to make money in life. You can either help people and make money or you're driven by the money. And if you're driven by the money, you'll do whatever, which means you don't really take care of the people. So, you know, if you got, you know, you have, to, we'll just say stockholders, which I don't have. I, you know, my, uh, my wife and my dog are my stockholders. So let's just say they put in a million dollars and they want 10% a year. Well, if you had 100 tenants and you lose some, you're like, okay, we're, we got to make 1.1 million. So how do we do that? Well, we got to raise the fees on them, which to me is treating the people poorly. All I do is I don't really have a mark. I don't have a, you know, I don't have to pay back or be under somebody's thumb, I like to say. So I love helping folks, and ironically, one day you look back, you know, it's kind of like you pick up a couple of coins and you help this person throw them back, and one day you look back and it's like, oh my God, where'd that big pile of money come from? And it's pretty, it's a very, to me, it's very self, it's a very fulfilling role to help people and see companies grow and their families grow, and and it just is such a great community. I like to say, um, you know, I have a bunch of friends that are my tenants that I like to help, and they've made me successful as a entrepreneur, you know, running a power and space color room. Were there any specific lessons that, you, that were defining moments that you had while you were, you know, working or in college or working while you were in college or, or post-college before you started the company or even, you know, while you, while you had Colocation Atlanta and growing Colocation Atlanta that really helped kind of solidify, you know, the, your practice or, you know, dealing with people, you know, any, any stories that you have or defining moments that you have to that extent? I think I do. I have one in particular that just came to mind. Um, I People always have this big battle plan, you know, and they're like, oh, I want to start a co-location. And, you know, I think there's a new company coming to town. They're going to be a million square feet. And I was like, wow, a million square feet in a very aggressive market. That's that's a big, big chunk to take off. My point to what I learned is I just grew a little bit at a time. You know, I, once again, I wasn't in it for the money. I grew as I could bring you know, folks to come and be in my facility. I want to digress real quick. The other big thing about Design 56 is we're interconnected. I have, a, it's, it's a bridge, and I'll just give you a quick little story. I grew up on the Ohio River, and Grandma lived across the river in Kentucky. So we would pay a quarter at the toll booth, drive across the bridge and see Grandma, and then when we came home, we'd drop a quarter in Kentucky and come over back to Ohio to house. It's exactly the same thing, except we have two bridges, so it's diverse, between 56 meet me room, Telex, which is now DRT, and myself. So that was what was so beautiful that anybody in my facility can connect with people in their facility and vice versa. I think it's the only place in the whole country that has two major meet me rooms that have interconnection and we're partners, you know, and we share in that. So what I learned was was to grow small and not overextend myself. And I remember when year seven, I had the 1,000 square feet that I started, and I was like, you know, I have enough money now that I could pay rent for half of that eighth floor, 
and I and I and it's kind of like a gambling story. I was like, I, I was all in. I said, I, I think I can do this, and so I and took over another 8,000 square feet, which was huge, you know, coming out of a 1,000 square feet facility. And every, it was amazing. I was like, wow, how am I going to get some tenants? Because basically all my monies that I made from rent on Space and Power paid for the lease, so I was okay. Within the first month, I had four companies that came to me that heard that I had space and wanted to move in with me. And I had almost 25% of the space leased up within a two-month period. So it was um, a beautiful thing. I guess my lessons learned is live your dreams, but, you know, just don't overextend yourself to where you lose your dream and be good to people and they'll be good to you. Yeah, that's, that's a good lesson. I, you know, I spent my entire career out in Silicon Valley before moving to to Raleigh and it's almost the exact opposite uh, lesson that they teach, (laughs) that they teach young entrepreneurs and just business folk, which is leverage yourself as much as you possibly can overextend yourself as much as you possibly can shoot for the moon. Uh, and if you fail, it's not a big deal because you're playing with other people's money anyway. <laughs> um, and what, what I've appreciated about being out here in, in Raleigh and just talking with folks in and around uh, this region is that it's, I don't want to say more, I guess it is, it's a little bit more conservative, right? There's more of a mindfulness and a, you know, we don't need to get rich quick. We can play the long game uh, we can spend our money while we ha- when we have the money. We can take the risk when we can afford to take the risk. Um, but going back to that decision point where you had to go, as you said, all in. You know, what was that conversation like? Did you have to run that conversation by your wife or or your dog, <laughs> as you were saying, your shareholders? Um, or yeah, I wish. Uh, well, I don't have shareholders. I own. Uh, I love that term, OPM, other people's money, which I never got to partake in. Um, I've always took the monies that I made and I saved, and just like I started my engineering company, I I was I'm an electrician too, electrical contractor. I have my license, so I, I wired houses on the weekends to make extra money to be able to open up my own engineering firm. Once I passed my test, which I finally did, and I had money to do that, so not really. I just um I didn't use other people's money. I used my own money, and to make the decision was very big. But I said, you know. I've been very successful. I got like, I opened my doors on October 1st, 2001. It was like literally three weeks after 9-11. So I always remember when I opened my doors. By the grace of God, I had three good tenants that had signed the dotted line before in September. And then I was building out the room to open in October. And because of that, you know, I I got to, you know, get through the, you know, because after 9-11, our economy kind of took, a you know, a bump. Um, and I made it through, or I wouldn't have made it through if I didn't have those three tenants. I found that if you're loyal and you help people, that all came into the decision. I said, you know, I'm going to go for it on the eighth floor. I think I could make this happen, and I'm willing to just sacrifice my 401k money. If you remember back when I said oh, I started it, I said, I think this could be great. Maybe it could fill up. And sure enough, I think the secret to the sauce was helping people, just like Hunter and them. I mean, I, and Rory and Todd. When they came down, I became their friends. We're still friends today. You know, I mean, uh, we'll just say another name. Chris Downey used to be the CEO at Telex. We're, we're friends. I'm friends with all these gentlemen. I don't, I don't treat them as competitors. I treat them as friends and, uh, and fellow associates that we can actually bounce things off of, you know, and we're doing well. And we can uh, say, how did you do this? How did you do that? And I said, well, I did this. And I've actually designed 
some of their facilities, people might think that's crazy. It's like, why are you designing for your competitors? I said, well, I don't have competitors. I got good friends. Have uh, friends in the engineering world, too. I was like, we were college buddies before we ever started our own firm, and we like to keep college buddies and we help each other. Amen. That's that's a great way to live. I call it co-opetition. And a lot of people look at yeah. me sideways and think I'm crazy. But back in the day when well, I used the best to work, answer, I prayed a lot. That's what I did. <laughs> I yeah, prayed a lot. Yeah, meditation and prayer is definitely key to almost every major decision I've made in my life. So you made an interesting comment about 2001 and how you, you got started in 2001. And I wanted to come back to that because there are other major facilities that were kicked off either right prior to that or right after that that actually went through some really hard times and either went bankrupt and had to, you know, be sold on the chopping block. Um, how, you know, were the tenants that you had, it's not just that you had them sign contract, but they very easily could have gone out of business themselves. Right. So did you, yes, did sir. you make sure that the tenants that you were bringing on were kind of void from being affected by the major downturn in the market or was it just luck luck of the draw in, in who signed and that they remained in business? The whole reason I opened the room and started it, it was for what I call the little guy. That's not that's not a demenial content uh, context. Anybody that wanted to start in a telecommunications company could come be with me. For less than a thousand bucks, you know, they could have power, space, and connectivity to anybody, not just in the United States in the world. I mean, it's really phenomenal how powerful the internet has become. And I was like, guys, you know, if you don't have a thousand bucks a month to spend in this business, don't cut your teeth on this business. You got to at least put something in, and that's what's required. So I had a lot of folks, um, you know, I hate to say I was kind of like a brothel. Anybody could, you know, I took anyone. Um, And, you know, if their credit wasn't that good, you know, I was very simple with them. I said, you got to pay me on the first. It's the only thing I want to help you with. If you don't pay me on the first, I'm going to turn you off. So, beautiful part about being a telecom, you have leverage make people pay because I've got, I've heard, I think I've collected rent for 170 months or yeah, 170 months in a row. And I can tell you, I've heard every excuse under the sun why they didn't pay the rent on the first, but, um, what's the most memorable, what's the most memorable reason? Well, I went on vacation, Tim, and I forgot to pay. And I said, you pay your mortgage. Oh yeah. I mean, I had to come home to live and I'm like, really, but you didn't want to keep your company down here with me running. Oh, well, that's a good point. I just thought that was good. Of course, you know, I had the, would you take the dog ate my check? And i like, no, not really. But I said, thanks for trying. <laughs> that was the next next question I was going to ask you is, did you ever get that one? And so, then some people, I mean, um, I don't know how these other companies do it. They'll let people go six months. You know, they call it AR. I get people call me all the time. It's like, you know, can we help you? They're AR. And I'm like, what's that? And they said, accounts receivable. Never heard of it. But I feel good about that because I feel like we shake hands, honorable person. We shake hands. I said, we agreed. You agreed you're going to pay me on the first, late on the fifth. Because I'll give them five-day grace period, you know, because first sometimes falls on Saturday, Sunday, or holiday. And I said, I will do whatever I can in my power to help you make money. And all I ask is, you know, pay me what we agreed to. And they all say yes, but it's just it's amazing. You have your stragglers. I had 92. It's funny. Just this last week, I had a talk with one. I said, you know. For 10 months in a row, I always keep having to ask, because I'll call them before it gets late. And I was like, you know, this is kind of getting old. I said, I got 92 tenants and 91 have paid. Guess who hadn't paid? Would that be me? And I said, yeah. And I said, well, I'm going to talk to the higher-ups and see if we can't pay a month in advance. And I said, that would be wonderful. Thank you. So 
And their the reasoning, they come up with all kinds of reasons. The one that broke my heart one time was he said he had a death in his family, you know, when his parents passed. And I said, you know, I'll tell you what. I found out it was true, and I said, why won't you just not pay me for that month and put that towards the funeral? And he said, thank you, sir. I, and once again, I can do that because I like helping people. I mean, just, you know, I think you should do good things in life like that. Yeah, that and you own the business, right? So you can you can call that shot and not have to go through layers and layers of bureaucracy just to get a, an approval on that. Yeah, that's a beautiful because I have a terrible boss. He's the worst. Um, I see him every morning. He fires me. And then I go back and look at in the mirror and he goes, do you want to come back? And I say, yes, sir, I do. It's a wonderful thing. Um, so you've never had, I, I find this shocking. You've never had one of your tenants like go out of business and, and you know, not be able to to pay or, or say, Hey, can you just buy me three months or four months or, or whatever while we're going through a restructure or whatnot? I have. Uh, and I meant, I, I did not say that. I apologize. Yes, sir. I have. Um, this is the way I kind of said when I grew up, you know, and I was out on the farm with my grandma and there's an old saying, you know, you can't get blood from a turnip. A lot of these folks, they fell on hard times. And I'm just going to say it's a bad business plan and it didn't turn out for them. And I just let them out of the lease. I mean, they're just like, you know, I don't know, they owe me two more years. They signed, we'll say, a three-year deal, and, and, you know, they went bankrupt in a year. And they said, what can you do for them? And I said, why don't we just cancel the lease? And they just said, Tim, really? And I said, absolutely. He said, everybody else is, you know, bloodthirsty trying to get this and that, and you're going to let us out? And I said, yeah. And the irony is, from that story, I always believe if you treat people good, you get it back tenfold. I've had four tenants go through that same process. I helped them out, let them out of the lease. They were like a cabinet, two cabinets. You know, all four of them came back strong. They said, there's only one place we're going to go back to, and that's back to you, Tim, if you'll have it. So, sure, all of them have at least 10 to 15 cabinets each, making, you know, I assume millions of dollars, hand over fist, because I gave them that break, and I guess I earned their loyalty. They said, well, there's only one place I'm going because I know I'm treated right there, and they're, I've watched their business flourish, and it's been a... You know, that's once again, it's a fulfilling, wonderful thing. Not all about the money in my world. It's about, you know, feeling good and helping people. Well, that's a great lesson for people who are listening uh, to hear because you don't hear, I mean, people hear about karma and how, you know, they hear, they hear the theory of it, but they don't hear the practice of it. And so I appreciate you actually telling a story of a tangible, you know, tangible case where that has occurred uh, in, in the business world, right? Because you may... You may hear a friend or, or someone give an anecdote of a buddy who, um, you know, you forgave, who then came back and, you know, did something nice for you. But in the business world, it's it's rare <laughs> to, to hear that kind of, uh, especially an executive and an owner of a business to uh, to speak that that language at the end of the day. So I, I appreciate that. And uh, and you coming forward with that. And I hope that the listeners can hopefully take that to heart and let that sink in as they make some of the decisions that they have to make in their own, in their own lives, in their own businesses. I think I could digress back to what you said, you know, got me to the person I am today. And um, now I remember another thing I learned from my grandfather. He said, you know, Tim, don't kick a man when he's down. I mean, everybody, you know, guys down and then they just want to jump on top of him. And I'm like, why don't we help the guy up? You know, maybe he can shrug this off and, you know, learn from his failure and become 10 times better. And I think every person I like, I love to read and I read about all these entrepreneurs, you know, even people like our current president, President Trump, you know, Mr. Buffett, all these, you know, the uh, gentleman, um, uh, Bill, um, the guy that did the Microsoft. Gates, um, Bill Gates. They all, Mr. Gates, 
they all have these stories how they failed, but they learn from their failures. And their biggest success was don't make the same mistake twice. And that's what so many people do. They just keep making the same mistake and fail and never learn. Well, these guys learn and then look at them where they're at today. So I've tried to do the same thing. I just don't feel like, you know, give the man or lady, because there's a lot of women that have their companies too that I'm proud to have in the room. You help them. You know, when they're down, they're down on their luck, they need a little help, give them a couple months. It, you know, it helps them and they'll repay you tenfold because they'll come back from that because you did an act of good kindness, helps them, it makes them smile maybe when everybody else is beating on them and not helping them. And then look at them, they come back with the fury because they find another investor or a good partner. I've seen that. I won't say hundreds of times, but I've said I've seen it quite a few times, and it's really, it's a beautiful thing to see folks fail, learn from their mistakes, and then come back and have a successful company, and then turn around and do an IPO and make millions of dollars. It's like, wow, I remember back in the day when you couldn't even pay me for half a cabinet, you know, 300 bucks, now look at you. So speaking to failure, you know, as, as an entrepreneur, business owner, you've been at it now for 17, 18 years. What has been one of your most memorable failures that, that you've learned from? Well, I um, maybe as my Georgia Tech savvy, I kind of got crazy and I wanted to have all these businesses. So on top of starting the communications company, I had a water company. I bought, you know, I was partnering two golf courses in Daytona, had a subway, had all these things going on. So this is, this is one of those old things. He who has the most toys when he dies wins. Well, I learned <laughs> that's not true. He who has you know, the most happiness in life and not the most toys by the person that wins. I could tell by not, by choosing partners, which you almost need to choose your partners in business like you do your wife. You know, they're few and far between and probably only one in a lifetime. And I couldn't focus on everything. So I focused on JT, you know, my communications company and my engineering practice. But I can tell you, because of that, all these other businesses failed. And I think the key factor was I wasn't able to, you know, put and focus and make sure everything was above board and running correctly. And I trusted other people that, you know, just didn't turn out good. And uh, the water company was my worst. You know, we had a great product and I was like, how hard can this be? The water's free. We just put it in a bottle and sell it. And uh, it's amazing how our capital uh, structure of economy works. Everybody seems to have a hand in on what you do. And I learned from that lesson in telecom, everybody else did not call it managed services to make it a simple thing. I don't offer those things. What I offer is space and power. That's what I do. I tell folks, I offer them three things. I said the power will be on 24-7, 365. If you put heat into the room, I'll take it out. And God forbid there's a fire, I'll put it out. And that's what I'm good at. And that's what that's all I try to sell. And I, I do it only at my facility when you ask why I don't go to others because it was hard to make that promise when you're 500,000 miles away. And I might throw in my little tidbit. I love to brag, but I'm knocking on wood because I'm superstitious. Uh, the 17 years of business, sir, I've been in um, business. I've never been offline a millisecond ever. I, my facility has never been offline in 17 years. And I say, who's your competitor? So you tell me who's who, who's done that and can tell you. So that's my competitor. And they said, well, I don't know anybody like that. I said, exactly. Yeah, that's that's a great uh, testimony right there. So to the the points that you were making about just being so diversified, right? It's what yep. what I've learned is you know it's it's just a law of physics, right? It's a law of energetics. You know, we only have so much energy that we can produce on any given point in any given day, 
Uh, and for those of us who it sounds like you are, you know, there's there's more to life than just running a business. You know, you have your wife. You have any kids? No, sir, I don't. I um, I met my beautiful bride when I was in my forties, so we were later in life. Gotcha. So the the gentlemen that I've met in my life who you know have a family, have a uh, a wife, uh, kids, or you know, just not kids, but people who who focus on their family and their personal life, as you were saying, you know, being happy um, and not just the money. It means that you have to take away, you know, the time and energy that you would put into your business or businesses and direct it into those channels. And that means that you only have, you know, so much energy that you can put towards what it is that you want to accomplish day in, day out. Uh, and so being too diversified, it, it fractures the laser of your energy, right? So, what you're saying is, yes, you know, sir. I was able to f- focus my laser beam as tight as possible on accomplishing one thing and doing it extremely well, which it sounds like, I mean, the proof is in the pudding for you, right? Uh, you've you've yes, fulfilled sir. the mission of delivering 100% uptime over the last 17 years, uh, which is impressive. I mean, that's beyond impressive. And it's because of the focus. And I think there's, there's big lessons to be learned there. So um, for those who are listening, again, who are thinking about maybe starting their own business or even within their own job. Right. So your employees, right? Those who are trying to do too much and cannot fulfill any one promise that they're making because they're saying yes to everybody, that becomes a, a tough place to be. And so you just have to learn to say no um, and say no with conviction and have the rationale that, you know, you want to continue to focus on this, the things that you know you can deliver on. And that goes back to the promise that you make to your customers. Yes, sir. And um, also, I don't want to be remiss. Um, another big lesson I've learned in life. A lot of people look how much money they're making and they want to add an extra person because they need, you know, everybody knows when you need help. I've never looked at it that way. When a good man and or woman comes across your way, you don't look at how much finances you got. You just make it work. And I've been blessed. I have four gentlemen that work with me. And without them, I, I, I do this little analogy, if I might digress on this. Uh, you know, it's kind of like the love boat. You know, I have a big ocean liner. Yeah, I own it. I'm up there in the captain's seat and I'm driving the thing. But, you know, if these guys, what I say, they keep the engines running, they make sure, you know, the propeller, everything's working. They help the, you know, the folks we have on board, my passengers, all my tenants. But that doesn't mean they, we all have to be a team because if there's a torpedo coming off the port side of the boat and nobody calls and tells me, you know, the boat sinks and we all lose. I lose, they lose, tennis lose. So I like to say it's, there's no I in team. It's a team effort. We all take care of each other. I take care of them. Ironically, I gave them a raise and time off. When you ever hear that happen? I thought it was kind of neat. So what, what and, lessons have you learned in managing that team? Because to, to manage a team effectively uh, within a building at the scale that, you, that you're in, and given the mission-critical nature of what you're doing, it's no easy feat. Um, in fact, it's, it's very difficult, as anyone who's in that role will tell you. Uh, what, what do you think some tips and tricks are that you've picked up over the years to that extent? Always treat your personnel with respect. Always show them what you're doing. I am very anal on preventative maintenance. I actually call my Maytag guys. Do you ever see that commercial, the Maytag man just sitting around doing nothing? Because I want to make my system. We do a PM, preventative maintenance, every quarter on my HVAC. Ironically, I had three cracks, and that's computer room air conditions when I started. Now I'm up to like 34. So the mechanical guy loves me. I do. We change the filters whether they need it or not. Every three months, we check everything. We check my DC power plants, of which I have four, and I have four independent electrical systems, which means I have four UPSs fed by four different generators. You know, 
I really put the effort and spend the money in preventative maintenance so they're not, they don't have to be there all the time. You know, we don't have emergencies happening, you know, knock on wood again on Murphy's Law. So treat them with respect. Um, you know, some days when we ain't got much going, I just call them and say, hey, listen, I don't have anything going on. Wait for the UPS or FedEx guy and, uh, you know, go ahead and call an early weekend. Or if there's not much going on, a couple of them can take a day or two here or there. Um, give them, you know, give them the perks. I like to take them out. I have a favorite place in town here in Atlanta. It's called New York Prime. It's a it's a great establishment, good steaks. And, you know, I'll take them out like an appreciation dinner. And you, just taking a man out and or woman, and I take the families for Christmas, so they're part of it. You know, because sometimes, you know, you have to respond at 2 in the morning. It's like, you know, the, you know, the wives are going like, well, why you got to go down there now? Now? Take them out like that and say, "Hey, I'm waking you up. You know, you know, you go down and help Tim. You know, go, go. It's kind of funny. That's the lesson I've learned. Be good to people and um, you know, show some gratitude every now and then. It might just be a dinner. Beautiful. Yeah, that's that's a great lesson for people to learn. Just giving people attention and even saying to someone, "Thank you." Right. I learned that back back in the day. I would always, uh, you know, give gift cards and just build a relationship with the the data center operations staff that was responsible for building and deploying the environments that I was selling into the facilities and the, the response and the, you know, getting a smile from those people as you're turning a corner because it's a genuine smile and not because they feel like they have to. Um, for me, that, that made it all worthwhile. Um, and also, you know, it helped that when I would call them, they'd pick up the phone because they knew it was Sean calling who, who they, you know, respected and trusted because I respected and trusted them. And it's, it's those simple things, man, that I'm constantly banging my head against the wall when I'm visiting other data center service providers and meeting their teams. And, um, you know, a simple question as, you know, I like to sneak in when I'm doing tours and whatnot with, with clients and, or just interviewing companies, you know, do, do you like, do you even like your job here? Um, and I ask it at an inopportune time um, when they're not expecting it because the instant response is the response, right? If someone takes five, yeah. 10 seconds before they answer that question, that's the answer to the question uh, versus those who, when you ask that question, instantly respond with, I love my job. This is a great place to work, right? And you can tell in their reaction that they mean it, that it's genuine. Um, and that goes a long way. And I think a lot of a lot of customers and even owners of these these facilities and these buildings, if they were to ask their employees that, or they they'd have a third party ask it, and they would you know get an authentic, genuine response, they'd be pretty stunned at what they'd find in their workforce. And then they have to start asking some very very hard questions that they may not even want to ask um, because they don't want to hear the answers. That's very true. I um yeah you, you said one thing and um. My wife, you know, and that's another thing, you know, having a great family. I have a beautiful wife, very supportive. She has her own company, you know, so we're both entrepreneurs. We help each other. And we were talking about this the other day. When you grew up, you know, somebody did something for you, you wrote. You know, people forget how to even write a letter or write a thank you card for something that somebody did nice for you. They just don't do it. And now, even simply sitting down, a thank you costs nothing. And you'd be amazed that. Telling people thank you, and I was born and raised, and I still say, you know, yes, ma'am, and no, sir, yes, sir. And uh, I remember, I will say, I do have one gentleman. I won't put his name out there, but he's a uh, 18 years old and got his own communications company in high school. I, I you know, I, I don't text him during the day because he's in class, 
And he's been with me a little over a year, and that was one of my fondest things was to help you know someone younger like that in the business. And it's just phenomenal that I have an 18-year-old kid that has a successful business and in my facility. I just think it's, uh, I, you know, as you can see, I'm kind of gleeful about it. I think it's kind of cool. And I called him, and I, you know, I tell him yesterday, and he said, you called me sir? I said, yes, sir, I did. I said, that's just the way I was raised. Yeah, I've got a, a son who's almost, who's 11, who's almost a brown belt in karate. And I will always remember the first day he came back from class and he started calling me, yes, sir. And I was like, this is worth every penny. <laughs> I went to the, the gentleman who ran this, the, the karate studio and I was like, dude, you have me for life. <laughs> it doesn't matter what, what you do to, to my child moving on forward. So long as I get a yes, sir out of him when he comes back, you know, he'll be with you for life. So well, not to share a whole bunch, but part of my discipline, um, when I was in college, like I mentioned, I always wanted to fly jets. I figured, hey, I might not be the best pilot in the world, so if I go down on the ground, I want to be able to survive or at least have a chance to, to live and not be a POW. It was basically my, my fear. So I learned how, you know, I could always shoot a shotgun because I grew up hunting. And so I became a marksman shooting, you know, a pistol. And I got into karate when I was uh, 19. And I've been in karate ever since. I learned karate was more of not just learning to fight, but it was more of discipline and attention to detail. And I think between going to Georgia Tech and doing the karate, because I got my black belt uh, right before I graduated, and then I got my pilot's license, I was like, hey, I, I need to, you know, and that was hard co-oping because it took me over a year and a half because I just didn't have money to go fly. Ironically, it's 35 bucks an hour, including your IP back then. That was huge. I mean, now it's like 200 bucks. It's crazy. But I was driven, and I had the discipline, or I would have never made it through flight school. I think those helped. Flight school was easy to me because it was attention to detail and never make the same mistake twice. God knows I made enough, but I would learn talking to people. Other people make mistakes. Listen to what they did, and I was like, I did it. So I could check that off, not to do what they did. Carry that into the telecommunications world. You know, I do all the engineering, and I can tell you, you mentioned that. When I give people tours, I try to always tell them, I've learned in the beginning, I said, if I, if I talk too much, you got to cut me off because I can talk about my baby all day long. They love that I talk. They said, Tim, you're just so impassioned. I love this place because I was like, I designed it, you know, and I had the contractors of my friends while I'm there build it, and then I run it every day. It's just uh, I love what I do. And from that, from 2001, I meant to say this when you asked me earlier, to date, 16 years later, I have consistently made anywhere from 8 to 20%. I've done better every year straight. Never had a bad year in a row, and that's a couple knocks for that one. So, so Tim, the uh, i got to ask you a hard question here. So uh, I just want to sure. preface this. One of the things that I struggle with, with a business that has a leader such as yourself, who you know, you're the face of the business, you're the voice of the business, um, you know, your customers love you because you take care of them, and yes, you have a culture within the organization, hopefully that, that bleeds through down from the top, right, to the customers. You know, what, what's your long-term plan? What's your long-term secession plan? I mean, the, the market's hot right now. I'm sure you've got people pounding down your door, throwing, you know, massive amounts of money, you know, or offering massive amounts of money at you for, for your business. Um, but what happens when you leave? You know, that's, it truly is one of the, the struggles that I have as an entrepreneur and as a business owner, uh, you know, having come up in Silicon Valley and seen great leaders such as yourself who build successful businesses and great relationships who at the end of the day are eventually going to have to step away, right? 
And when they do step away, what's, you know, how, how are you thinking through the next step and how do you ensure that there is a legacy that's left behind with the relationships that you have with your customers and the business such that someone new doesn't just come in, look at it as a cash cow um, and, you know, do as little amount as possible to maximize the return and maybe flip the business and move on to the next opportunity. I'll share a quick story with you. Um, 12 years ago on my birthday, I loved riding Harley and um, I was down at Daytona at bike week riding. You know, I'd probably been my 12th year down there and it was Friday night. It's my birthday. And I actually had a condo with one of the original owners of 56. We just decided, Hey, we'll go down here for a bike week twice a year. And, and the races, the Daytona 500 firecracker, why don't we just get a place? So we did. So we left the place, and I said, hey, let's go down to a little restaurant that we like, and then we'll go and have a big party down at Main Street and meet a lot of the guys that came down. Unfortunately, an 80-year-old dude T-boned me, which I never saw coming, and uh, I actually died at the scene from a new term, aspirating. I was choking on my own um, spit. Anyway, a guy sent by my um, guardian angel, I like to say, and he basically shoved a tube in my throat, and I took a big, big breath, and you know, they got me, I brought a little helicopter and landed and took me to Halifax Hospital, and I was in coma for 10 days. The whole point of my story was God let me come back. All I, The only thing I couldn't remember was the accident. I could remember everything in life. They told my mom and, you know, Vera, before we got married, it actually come down. And they said, oh, we don't know how he's going to be. You know, he may be back in kindergarten, can't remember nothing. Who knows? And here I come up, first thing I asked was like, hey, where's my dog? <laughs> um mom she goes you know who i am i said yes i do what, what are you guys doing why, why am i here you know that kind of thing um so what i learned was life almost was taken away from me so i feel like i'm 12 years old now because my birthday's in march i'll be i'll be a teenager this year my second time around i learned hey if i'm not here what's going to happen to the company so back then i'd started making things so i've made huge changes i let all the guys that work for me. They run the business. They know more than me about everything. You have to let go of some things. You know, it's not one of those things, job security. If I know everything, they can't fire me. I let everybody know. Hunter's one of my fondest supporters. If something happened to me, you know, Hunter would, would take over my business because he's one of the few men, as you mentioned, that knows how to run it in the country. So what I've done on an exit plan, the biggest thing for me, and it's hard I love helping people, so it's not really about the money. If I had a goal and wanted to make, we'll just say, $2 million, and I could get $2 million, I'm out. Well, I've never been wired that way. I'm like, I love helping people. So my biggest challenge, and I've been fighting this for about a year, is what do we want to do next? What could I do next that's not doing this? I can say for 17 years, this has been 24-7. I mean, every second of the day. I have to think, I don't get weekends off. I don't get Saturday and Sunday and Christmas because everybody wants their internet to work, basically. So I don't know how to downshift. I'll be honest with everyone. I don't know how to downshift from a 27, love what you do, and can't figure out what the next step is. But yes, there is going to come a time I'd like to hand a wand over. What I'm doing now is I'm getting my tenants sign up for long-term, you know, with, um, you know, renewals and they can get kick out so they're not like stuck for 10 years but they are because whomever comes in uh, whether it's you know a, a major company like digital realty or you know a smaller company basically they have their lease and they're they're set for 10 years you know they got no monthly recurring cross connect fees would happen you know their their lease 
would escalate, you know, a couple percent, three, three, four percent a year. So they know it's set for 10 years. They're protected is what I'd like to say. So I'm making a plan. It'll be, you know, I'll be double nickels this year. I always like to laugh. I say I can maybe I need to get a speed limit sign, 55. I don't feel 55. Uh, but there is a day, yes, we all have to let it go. And I'd love to pass it to someone that definitely I want them to take care of my tenants. So I've kind of put up a shield for them. So I'm actively always planning on, you know, I don't I don't get a lot of spare time to sit around and not think. And that's these are the things I like to think about. Well, that's, that's, uh, I appreciate the authentic response there. Not that I, I wouldn't expect you to, to answer that way. Um, it's definitely some good things to think about and how you can prepare for that exit, um, as you're saying, contractually with your customers to make sure that they're taken care of and that someone doesn't come in and all of a sudden jack up you know, the prices uh, beyond what, what they're used to. Because it's <laughs> like those who have been in the industry for the last 15 years have seen time and time again that happen where, you know, no cross connect fees is kind of a sales tool to build the business. And then you flip the business and someone else comes in and says, why are you not charging cross connect fees? You're leaving a, a gold mine on the table. And then all of a sudden the customers hit in the renewal with, you know, cross connect fees or, or substantial increase in those fees. Getting back to the data center industry, right? We've talked a lot about the business and, and you personally and your philosophy and, and um, how you approach your business. But how about the industry? How I mean, you've been through in two conferences for probably over a decade now. How have you seen the industry evolve over over the time that you've been in it since 2001? I don't know if it's a positive or a negative, and I'll use Metro Connect. It's one of the fondest conferences I like to go to. Why? Because a lot of operators like myself are down there, and you get to hear, you know, from what I like to say, the horse's mouth. And they tell you about things, and it's just so refreshing to hear what they're doing. And I'm like, well, I could maybe do that, or and to talk to them. And in the beginning, there's like you know anywhere from 300, 400 folks come. Now we're getting up in the thousands. What folks that come in is I, I call them private equity guys, PE guys, not to be confused with my professional engineering license. And they see this as a golden opportunity because the money and the multiples, and they come down. And it's more of what they call M&A, mergers and acquisitions. To me, what I've seen and stopped, you know, I went through the dot-coms. I saw that. I was lucky to, you know, get through that. And then all these mergers, I mean, Zayo, Level 3, and CenturyLink, and Windstream, those are the top four in my book. I would have like over 150 tenants now. They didn't buy everybody. Now I have 92. And what I've seen is, after the dot-coms, people had to start rebuilding. They didn't get things 10 cents on the dollar. And then everybody's merging. And I love right now that the M&A is down a little bit and everybody's not buying everybody because it can be a little more solidified, which means now when we go to these conferences, you can hear more about you know what I do and how I can make my business better opposed to these new terms called EBITDA, leverage, warrants. You know, all this stuff that I think I should have went to Yale or Harvard for, if they'd let me in, I might add, that I don't really miss. I enjoy listening to other people. Uh, I remember the DuPont Fabros. I think DRT just bought that up um, up in the north part and had some great people there. It's just fascinating to listen how someone runs a million-square-foot facility when I have, you know, a little over 20,000, 25,000 square feet. I kind of like, I don't even rate, but they they talk about my facility like it's, it's, it's the bomb, which I think is really cool. 
So I have this little thing in life of perception is reality. So when people think I'm like the, the big gun, I'm like, okay, I'll just let them think that. And it's, a, it's an honor, really, that I have partners in digital reality across the street, Telex. They've always been my partners, good people. You know, I don't try to go and steal customers from folks. You know, if they come, I was like, listen, you need to talk to them. I'm, I'm not into that. I like to, you know, promote, you know, good friendship. And you can have good relationships with all the competition or other folks that do this because it's such a growing market. And what I've seen is everything. I mean, before, when I grew up, I remember the phone was still on the on the wall. I remember I was trying to dial with the rotary dial when Pete Rose hit his 3,000 hits because he could win 100 bucks. And um, I look how much we used to leave the house and nobody could ever get in touch with you. So you didn't hear that phone ring, you'd be gone all day. Now, you know, we can't even hardly survive in this technology age without having our phone with us at all times. I ha- I have to have it for the business that I run, or I couldn't run a successful business without that kind of technology. Computers, I had to laugh when you asked me when's the first time I got a computer. I was like, wow, <laughs> I think I don't really remember. I remember the first calculator I bought. I had to buy an HP 41CV, they called it, which was actually a requirement to take a class at Georgia Tech in electrical engineering. Still got it. Love that thing. So apologize. I might have got off the subject there. I kind of ramble sometimes when I'm thinking. No, it's all right, man. Um, so one of the last questions I have for you um, has to do with just the the Atlanta-specific marketplace. You know, one of the things that we do here at Open Spectrum is we, we do detailed market reporting. So keeping track of who actually has what capacity where and what types of services are being sold. Atlanta is one of the most dense data center marketplaces in the country. Um, you know, top five in terms of your volume of, of service providers uh, in that market. And there's even more coming online, right? So you just heard Databank is going to be yes, working sir. with Georgia Tech to build a facility and you have expansions going on left and right. How, I mean, back when you first started, there were only a handful. And within the last five years, there's just been a almost a, a 2x or 3x in terms of volume of new players coming into that space, which I'm sure has been drastically changing the the supply demand uh, and competitive landscape of Atlanta. Um, how have you seen that play out for your your business? Have, have you been affected by that or is it? Absolutely. Kind of- um, I, once again, I think, you know, DRT slash Telex at 56, me at 55, I think we're sitting on the gold mine because we're, we're sitting on what I like to call the glass in, in the metropolitan area. There's a lot of rural, the north, west part of Atlanta. A lot of folks are growing up there, but they don't have a lot of carriers or the, I mean, where would you want to go? Would you rather go where you can connect to 90 companies or you want to connect to three? People typically like 90. And I like to say, if you can connect them with no charge, you can make money by not spending it elsewhere. But technology in this market has exploded. It's funny, you know, I always, I read this article about my alma mater, Georgia Tech. By the time people graduate, they're they're already you know behind the curve in technology you know because everything they learned when they were a junior is behind the times. So you always got to stay on top of it. And I love you know I do continuing education units, but I always like to keep a pulse on what's new. I remember when DWDM gear came out, and I just thought that was the bomb. That instead of just using one, you know, spectrum of hertz on a uh, on a fiber, I think they're like up to six hundred. It's crazy. So because of technology and because there's so much supply 
it's been a wonderful thing. I remember when the old Macy's building, they caught 180 peach tree. We call it Mondo Condo. You know, they had almost a million square feet. They had that. QTS came into town and they bought two facilities. They got over, you know, almost two million square feet, you know, and then um, H5 and T5 and Peak 10, you know, all these, there's, there's a handful, as you mentioned, but there's enough for everyone because technology continues to grow at a frightening pace. And I'm glad we have the density here in Atlanta because the power's cheap. Georgia Power has a very good rate. We've got beautiful weather. Of course, we've got Hartsfield, so you can go to anywhere in the world on one hop, so it's easy to get to. And it has all these pluses. And the weather's beautiful here, except in the summertime sometimes when it gets hot. That's why they call it hot Atlanta. But I love it because it's more, more, more colleagues, more partners to have. A lot of times, you know, I can't handle a big deal. I, you know, I say go over here and, you know, call some of these other gentlemen that I know that run these facilities. They can take care of you. And a lot of times, if it's really too small, they'll they'll refer them to me. So, what goes around comes around as long as you keep it amenable. And you know, like you said, you know, you're working for the right purpose and not the wrong purpose. Um, to summarize what you said, uh, for the most part, you you have not seen your demand. Uh, affected, and you've been encouraging the new players coming into the market to, uh, you know, help tell the story of Atlanta as a major data hub in the United States, and specifically the the north, the southeast. Yes and no. My demand is definitely going up. All I'm saying is all this density and 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 having all these guys here and the new ones coming in. You know, a couple are going to build another million square foot facilities. I'm like, it's a very competitive market, but there's so much demand. That yes, uh, my demand's going up, and I'm thankful they got all these other places because with them, the demand's going up, and the end user being you know us really, there's a lot of things you know you can have your kids can have five iPads or you know and carry Wi-Fi on the go or watch a movie in a plane you know because you got it. Um, my demands went up. I've grown with it. I think the biggest thing you have to stay cognizant of is you got to stay on top of the technology and grow with it and not you know let it pass you by. So get behind. So I've got a couple, I guess, a couple other questions that might seem a little off topic here, but they, they kind of help frame frame who you are. And one of my favorite ones to ask is, on your laptop or your your PC, what do you keep as the backdrop to to your laptop or your PC? Well, I have a couple. So the one here at the office, I kind of always thought was cool. So it's a Windows one. It's a Windows and a Windows. It's like. I like the uh, baby blue. Of course, you know, being an Air Force pilot, love the sky blue. So I have, it's like, you're looking, it's chasting the shadow onto a window that's looking into a window. That's what I have here. At home, I like a lot, something more peaceful, and um, I carry it when I travel. I love uh, scenes of the ocean and the mountains. And in particular, if I can have the mountains and the ocean and where you can see it, uh, that's, I love serene, beautiful nature pictures that, uh, you know, beautiful areas that God's done for us that you get a, sometimes I wish I was a photographer. They got the eyes and uh, those are the type serenity. I like when I go home, I try not to work. I only work when I'm down at the office and at the facility. When I go home, I like to relax, you know, with the wife, the family and, um, and friends. Well, you're, you're probably in a position now where you've got people who, uh, who can worry at 2 AM if, if, if they, you know, they're getting the phone calls, you're not getting the phone calls anymore. Right. Well, I get my phone goes off. Ironically, we had an air conditioner. Uh, I will say, throw in one tidbit for Siemens. I have a Siemens program. And it's so cool because 
it's connected to all my systems. And if it goes over a certain alarm, which I can set, it'll text and emails all, you know, all the guys that work with me and myself. So yeah, I had an air conditioner decide the short, uh, short cycle, as we find out, at 4 o'clock today. It always scares me when the thing goes off. It's like, oh, God, what's going on now? Yeah. But I will digress and say, you know, I have mentioned earlier, I got four independent electrical systems, four independent heat rejection systems. Most facilities have one, two tops. They just won't want to spend the money. And I have all mine intertwined, so I don't have to have, you know, I actually have air conditioners don't even run. They're backups. So, you know, everybody talks about this N plus one, N plus two. I don't know what to call it, two N plus N. I don't know. I'm just super redundant. And on power, you know, even they got all these tier. This is the thing that makes me laugh. It's like, are you tier one or tier four? I said, let me ask you a question. Which one's higher? Is it tier one or tier four? Oh, I don't know. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> thanks for asking. I said, I yes. think I'm above all those tiers because I've I've had 100% uptime, which is a big thing for them. So everybody talks about I've always carried the SSA 16 rating, which used to be the SAS 70. Right. You know, a lot of... You gotta go, you gotta change with the times. It's very expensive. I think it's plagiarism, is what I call it. I write everything, tell them everything about it. They put it, their letterhead on it and send me an invoice. I'm like, this is crazy. <laughs> but third party verification, and you need it. A lot of folks need these, you know, certifications. Uh, I think I have eight tenants, and I only needed one to break even. And um, once again, I did the right thing, and I got eight eight good tenants out of it. Yeah, it's uh, it's almost like an SL. The whole tiering and the um the certifications and whatnot are a little bit like the um the uh, uptime uptime guarantee right so we have five nines or six nines or 100 percent uptime guarantee and it's you know I've, I've had some clients be like yeah but you know we're gonna go with the the provider who's gonna offer 100 percent uptime guarantee and i say well really what what's the uptime record of that facility and what's the fine print of that uptime guarantee um, so once you dig through that, you start to realize that a lot of it is just marketing, right? And the real question oh, you need absolutely. to ask is if you've been around for 17 years or 15 years or 10 years or even five years, you know, when was the last time you had a client impacting event? Because your uptime or your tier three or, you know, people say, oh, we're tier three plus. There's no such thing as tier three plus, but, you know, sure, you can call whatever you want. Um, you know, when was the last time you had a client impacting event? And if you did have one, how did you mediate that event? And what did you learn from that event? And what changes have been made from that event? That's far more influential and important than just having, you know, a stamp of uh, an audit or a certification or uh, an SLA. I can tell you for me, we've had two major events. One of them was the first tornado ever. And of course, you know, it had to hit down there at the Omni when they're having one of the NCA games. And thank God that roof didn't collapse and kill people. Luckily for me, Centennial Tower, 101 Marietta's, you know, came from the west. It's due west of us. It hit that building and bounced over 55. Didn't even get touched. Thank, it was a wonderful thing. Kicked left and took a hunk out of the Weston. And, and then the other one was here recently, Irma, when she came through. I actually went down, and it's very surreal. I sat down there for eight hours because, like, if we lose power, I want to make sure everything's going to come on, even though, you know, I test them routinely. And if I need to move things around, like let's just say if I lost system D, I can move it to A, B, and C. And I said, you know, I'm so I said that I was like, you know, I need to do this a little better so these guys know. And then I actually started looking at all my systems like, huh, hey, how'd I miss that? I need to do this and that if that happened. I um I'll go back to my military career at flight school. All we did when we took off was practice emergencies, what ifs. 
So when you ever had an emergency, it was a piece of cake because you'd only, you know, reacted to it a hundred times. I do the same thing with my facility, and that's what I was going through. And I was like, huh, I can't believe I missed one. So I actually, that's what I did. So I did a design and gave it to the contractor. And, you know, a couple thousand dollars later, we're set. Once again, I put money into preventative maintenance. A lot of folks don't, and I think that's why they have outages. My SLA is, I say, pressing the put proof is in the pudding. You know, I've been up 100%. You know, um, you know, we haven't went down. We haven't had any issues. If you have bandwidth or that type of issues, it's not because I didn't provide power to that tenant. It's because they're having issues. And that's a beautiful thing. I can say that very easily because I don't offer any services. If I offered bandwidth, it would be terrible because now I'm competing with a lot of my tenants. And that's why I like to say I am neutral. I am truly neutral because I offer no services. I, I try to be everybody's friend if that's even possible. But I damn sure do not do anything that I make enemies. And that would be one, trying to be a competitor with my own tenants that I'm expecting to pay me rent when I'm taking money out of their pocket. So you've you've def- just wrapped me back into um, an industry-related question that I had for you. Um, <laughs> but And that, that's totally fine. Um, but here, here's a question that constantly comes up, especially within the Atlanta market and those providers who are, have traditionally been offering just power and space as you as you do and have, uh, who feel as though they need to offer some kind of a managed service or some, you know, kind of a, a cloud play option in order to remain relevant in the the new uh, digital economy that we live in today. What what are your thoughts on that? Well, I've covered both those bases, and what I do is I you know managed services. I personally don't, but I have companies that have access to the room that can. You know, Presidio has been one of them. They're a big one. Um, and then the the thing that I also have is I have a peering exchange. And so folks can actually, you know, do business on that. And then I also just have another, you know, great company. It's called Pack of Fabric. Uh, it's, and they're starting to get on the ground running. Cloud services, you know, I have cloud providers in the room. So all these services are available. And the beautiful part I like to say is, hey, is there's no cost to connect, no monthly current, reoccurring cross-connect fees. Everybody's in my meet me area, and it's a layer one, single mode fiber only. Um, they can interconnect to each other, so they can get to a cloud platform. They can get, you know, to the Google, the Azure's, and those type. I have folks that offer bandwidth. They'll even give you ten megs of um, internet, no charge, just to kind of help you out. Once again, the small guy play. If you want to come in, and you need a little internet. It will help you. There you go. Perfect. So, one. Other key question I have for you is if you could go back to yourself when you started in 2001 and give yourself a, a piece of advice, uh, what would that piece of advice be? I think if I look back then that this is really my passion and I would have driven more to do more in this area, but I would never regret what I did. Um, you know, I, I took on all those other businesses. You know, I think I would buy less airplanes and let go of the dream jet. Uh, ideal. I think bottom line is like everybody probably say, I wish, uh, you know, I'm a healthy person. I wish I would have done a lot more things healthier. And I know one damn thing I would have done is not went to bike week 12 years ago. Well, the lesson you learned from that incident, though, I mean, you you would never have less learned that lesson then. I mean, would you Phenomenal. be the man you are today? No, sir, I would not. Right. Well, Tim, uh, very last question I have for you, and then I'll, I'll let you go and get back to your day. Uh, do you Do you love data centers? Absolutely. I love the technology. I love the, the jobs that it offers. And the products are just 
The only thing I'm really, I will say one bad thing about it is, uh, you know, I have a new godson. I've had him for about a year and a half. It's a shame that all these kids are so, um, it's kind of like, I think the fast foods, they put stuff in there to bring you back to so get more. They do the same thing on marketing to the, you know, the teenagers and young adults for that matter. I, I enjoyed getting out after school, playing wiffle ball, playing, you know, flag football, running around, just being outside. The thing about technology that I see is it's really taken a lot of that away from kids because they love, you know, playing games and sitting. Other than that, I love the data centers provided. I just wish we could find a caveat to where, you know, the kids could grow up like we did. Yeah, that's that's a tough one. Um, I think a lot of it falls on the parent, right? And if the parent's not around because yes, they're sir. working because they have to, right? Uh, just to make ends yeah. meet, it becomes even more difficult. You know, for it's it's a tough, tough game that my wife and I have to play with our own kids who always want to be on their tablets and even trying to limit their use. You know, it only creates that scarcity that makes them want it that much more. <laughs> so it's it's a tough game. Well, Tim, I, again, no, thank you so right. much. Yeah, I I greatly appreciate your humility and the uh, the accountability that you have and just the the man that you are and the, and who you represent, um, by doing what you do. I know you just say that, you know, you're just doing it the way that you know how to do it, but it's, it's, you're a rare breed. Uh, and I, I greatly appreciate you taking the time to sit and chat with me. Thanks, sir. It's all my honor to let me talk. I, I love to do that as you can see. Awesome. Well, have a great, uh, great weekend and hopefully we'll, we'll sit down and, and talk shop maybe over at uh, New York prime sometime. Absolutely. I'd love to take you. Let me know when you're in town and um, yeah, have a beautiful weekend. I will do. Thank you. Peace. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, The Data Center Collocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point, we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon. 